0: As a child in the late 1970s, Kevin Dykes accidentally killed his best friend when they were playing with a gun, sending him to juvie for involuntary manslaughter. When he got out, he turned to petty drug dealing in Compton, California. Fast forward to 1986. After a terrible assault that led to a four-month hospital stint, Kevin continued peddling drugs from his temporary wheelchair for two men named Slim and Hondo. Kevin rented a bed and a trailer home in his landlord's driveway, where Slim and Hondo occasionally hid weapons that june two incidents occurred just days apart resulting in one murder and two attempted murders the first during a party when kevin booted his friend ephraim for being belligerently drunk slim and hondo followed Ephraim, stabbing him several times a neighborhood mother mrs bradley came to ephraim's aid only to get stabbed as well kevin intervened jumping from his wheelchair to stop the assault before it turned fatal a few days later Slim and Hondo accused Kevin's friend, Otis Perry, of stealing their gun from Kevin's trailer home, stabbing him 81 times. Unable to stop the murderous frenzy and fearing for his own life, Kevin helped them clean up before going to the police a few hours later. A few days after that, Kevin was arrested for cocaine possession and put into a special holding tank for state's witnesses. Then, three jailhouse snitches claimed that Kevin had confessed to all three attacks in exchange for leniency in their own cases. Kevin Dykes is serving life in prison on the word of three notorious jailhouse snitches. This is Wrongful Conviction with Jason Plum. I'm
1: VioSav. This is Global Tell Link. You have a prepaid call from... ...an inmate at... The California State Prison, Los Angeles County, Lancaster, California. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. To accept this call, say or dial 5 now. Thank you for using Global Tell Link.
0: Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Today we have an incredible story, so we're going to get right into it. And I'm going to introduce you first to Stephen K. Hauser. He's a criminal defense attorney representing the star of this episode, Kevin Dyke. Stephen, welcome to Wrongful Conviction.
5: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: And Kevin Dykes is on the phone with us from prison, and I hope we'll be able to do something about his situation because it is awful. Kevin, I'm sorry you're here um, or where you are, but I'm happy you're here with us today. So thank you for being here. No
6: problem. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity.
0: This case goes back to Compton, 1986, and it's got... It's got so much that you'll think I'm talking about a movie script that would be too much to be believed, except for it's real. It's got gangsters named Hondo and Slim. It's got drugs. It's got snitches that ended up on 60 Minutes. It's got laws that changed and and victims who testified that this was not the guy who did it. It's got a guy who's in prison for three and a half decades with no evidence against him, except the testimony of jailhouse snitches who have recanted their testimony. It is nuts, but it's true. So let's get right into it, and Kevin, let's start with you going back to your uh, youth because you grew up in Compton, right?
6: Yes, I grew up good, two parent home, doing the pop water sports. I actually had a real good upbringing until I, uh, I think in nineteen seventy eight, I ended up actually killing my my best friend. I went for involuntary manfather, and I was sick to YA.
5: And for those of you who don't know, YA or CYA is the California Youth Authority.
0: As I understand it, your friend's death was entirely accidental, just two kids who made a big mistake playing with a gun. But they still sent you away to juvie for involuntary manslaughter. And I also understand that you harbor a lot of guilt about this, even though the family forgave you.
6: Yes. His family, they stayed directly across the street from my family. Even to this day, they still stay on the same street. Although the family had forgiven me, written me letters, and was coming to see me, when I got out, I saw what I did to that family. And I didn't know how to process. Although my mother and my father and my grandmother and all kinds of people were trying to help me, I didn't know how to ask for the help that I actually needed. So I got deeper into drugs, deeper into
0: the gang So, So the guilt kind of derailed your potential, it seems. And after juvie, you start dealing drugs and looking outside of what seemed like a supportive home for whatever it was that you felt you needed, acceptance, identity, whatever, out in the street. So fast forward to January 1986, some other really bad stuff happens.
6: January 18th, somebody tried to kidnap me. They tried to kidnap me in front of my house. I fought them, they ran me through a brick wall, and they broke my hip and smashed my pelvis. So I went to the hospital January 18th, and all the way to May 20th. When I got out of the hospital, I was in a wheelchair, and I had a walker, and I was going to do a therapy.
0: Yes, someone tried to kidnap Kevin. So you fought them off, and they ended up hitting you with their car against a brick wall, broke your hip, snapped your pelvis, and put you in the hospital for four months. I mean, you're lucky to even be alive, and we haven't even gotten to the part that has you locked up right now. Okay, so it's May 1986. You're temporarily in this wheelchair doing physical therapy and dealing drugs for these two mid-level management drug dealers named Slim and Hondo. Uh,
5: Slim and Hondo decided that they were going to take over the local drug sales I believe they helped Kevin and some of his friends with small amounts of cocaine to sell in the neighborhood. And they would periodically show up and, I guess, resupply the local sellers, including Kevin. And Kevin,
0: you were renting a place to stay from a man named Mr. Bryce. You were renting a bed in this mobile home that sat in his driveway, right?
6: Yes. I was a uh, fan in Mr. Bryce's mobile home. We had a mobile home that had like six beds, you know, an oven, a shower, it had all that stuff inside. It was parked in the driveway. Sometimes one of my friends used to stay. It had like six places where you could sleep in there. So Otis would come in and sleep in there.
5: And Otis is Otis Perry, who occasionally stayed at Mr. Bryce's mobile home. And he's the one that was eventually stabbed by Slim and Hondo for taking the gun. That they had left in the trailer the night that these two attempted murders occurred outside a party at Mr. Bryce's house.
6: Yes, and my cousin Pam was inside the mobile home. I was inside the house where the party was at when the fight when the fight happened. So I didn't know Oz was out there at the time. And I know Slim pulled up, they knew Mr. Bryce didn't allow guns in his house, but so they hid a gun in the mobile home with my cousin and Otis But I still sure didn't know nothing about that at that time.
0: Okay, so now the stage is finally set for these crimes to take place. This is, we're talking June 19th, 1986. There's a little party going on at Mr. Bryce's. Your friend Otis and your cousin Pam are in the mobile home in the driveway. Slim and Hondo, your bosses, come to hang out. But out of respect for Mr. Bryce, they leave their gun in the mobile home. Then. Your friend Ephraim is at the party, and he is drunk, to say the least.
6: Well, Ephraim is my older homeboy. He was drunk, being very and and uh, messing with the females that was up in there, grabbing drinks that didn't belong to him. And I saw Ephraim, man, go down to the pool, man, kick back. I got him, And then he kept on, so I got pissed off, and I hit him once. And uh, when I hit him... Hondo and Slim, both of them attacked me because of my, here's what they said, because I didn't understand why did they get involved in that. Here's what they said, because I could barely walk, they people were taking advantage of my disability.
0: Ah, okay. So your drug bosses are sticking up for you, but then they go way beyond what you would ever want them to do.
6: Yes. Yeah. So once I start income- both of them attacked him. I got him to stop, told him to leave. He left, and then they chased him down the street. They caught him at the end of the corner. Once I got down there, I saw that they was actually stabbing When I hollered, Hondo, leave him alone, Hondo. He looked up and saw me, but when he saw me, he saw Miss Bradley behind me. Miss Bradley, is uh, my older home mother. When she looked up and saw that it wasn't her son, she tried to turn and run. He ran her down, grabbed her by her dress, and started stabbing her. I hopped my way to him and grabbed him to get him off of her. And once I was holding him, she got loose, which gave Ephraim time to get up. And then I got to convince him to get into the car and drove him off. I drove him off to a motel, and then I came back to check on Ephraim and Miss Bradley, but the ambulance already came and it was in the hospital.
0: So. You basically saved Mrs. Bradley and Ephraim from being murdered by Slim and Hondo by convincing them to stop stabbing them and drive away from the scene. But this incident on June 19th is what becomes two charges of attempted murder that gets stuck on you, the guy confined to a wheelchair at the time. (laughs) Um, Yeah, okay. So Slim and Hondo stabbed both Ephraim and Mrs. Bradley. You drove them to a motel. At some point, your friend Otis, back at the mobile home, takes the gun Slim and Hondo had left behind. Not too smart, by the way, because Slim and Hondo knew who was in the mobile home when they stashed it in the first place. So they come looking for Otis on June
6: 23rd. June 23rd, he came over looking for Otis. It's like, one something in the morning, they said, come outside. I'm going to go and kill Otis. I didn't know Otis was out there in the motorhome. So when I went out to the front yard, door to the motorhome, open. Otis stepped out. Arnold attacked Otis. Came in with my gun. He said, we can go get it. He said, too late. And they attacked him. They started fighting. Otis was fighting back. So they were fighting him from the side of the motorhome. He went around the garage. and That was the first time I saw him being stabbed. Then I came back from around there. I wasn't able to run or whatever, so he didn't say nothing. And just listened to everything that was going on. And then, I don't know how much time passed, but then Arnold came from around there and with no more noise. I was wondering, okay, now what? He said, uh, uh well, what's up? You got something wrapped in me? And then I, I gave him my blanket. So him and son went behind the thing and wrapped him up, drug him out, and put him in the car. And instead of him and Slim going, he said, you Slim, you stay here. Watch out all the blood that was coming from behind the mobile home. And told me to get in the car and ride with him. So I took him over to my homeless neighborhood by the canal. And that's where he jumped in. I said, look, I'll be back. I left and never came back.
0: And what would you tell anyone listening now who's wondering why you played any part in getting rid of the body with Slim and Hondo?
6: I did with any reasonable person. Not trying to die, would have done after seeing what I saw. I knew I got to do something. that made myself a part of what's going on, and I wasn't physically able to do nothing to prevent myself from being killed. And I like stress that. That was the smartest thing that I could have done at the time for myself, instead of doing nothing.
0: If you had done nothing at all, what, what do you think Slim and Honda would have done?
6: I was a little bit too afraid to find out. I was in a position where something happened to my friend and I don't even know where I stood. And I did what I thought was the best thing to do for myself. Nothing I could do for others. Now I was about saving myself.
0: This episode is sponsored by AIG, a leading global insurance company, and Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison, a leading international law firm. The AIG Pro Bono program provides free legal services and other support to many nonprofit organizations and individuals most in need. And recently, they announced that working to reform the criminal justice system will become a key pillar of the program's mission. Paul Weiss, has long had an unwavering commitment to providing impactful pro bono legal assistance to the most vulnerable members of our society and in support of the public interest, including extensive work in the criminal justice area. Otis's murder eventually gets pinned on you. The guy who was only able to watch or listen helplessly has your friend got stabbed to death. And then, in order to save your own life, you did what probably any of us would have done. You played along with Slim and Hondo until you could get away. I would not want to have been in your shoes at that point. You just lost your friend Otis. You had to contend with the question of to snitch or not to snitch on like a Sophie's Choice on these two murderous drug dealers.
6: And that's when I was trying to process what had just happened And the show. 6, thirty, seven o'clock in the morning, that's when I saw the police and I told them that uh, I think I know who that was. One of them said, come over here, look, they moved the blanket, I knew it was. I said, I know where he lives. I took him to his mother's house. And then when we came back to the scene, I asked him, I said, look, if I had any information, Talked I contact, and he gave me his card. I took your card, rode around two miles, and then I went to the phone booth. And then I called the police. Said, "Look," and I told them everything that they needed to know, and told them where I was at. They came and picked me up, took me out to the station, and then I made the tape. And then once I made the tape, they let me go. I went back home.
0: So you made a statement to a sergeant, Sergeant Preston. And you're going to be a witness. And Steve, maybe you can tell us about the next part of this story, which is how Kevin was picked up for cocaine possession sometime later. And while in the state's witness holding area of L.A. County Jail, he eventually meets three guys who are responsible for him being in this horrible predicament today.
5: What happened was Kevin got arrested for a possession of cocaine charge. And because he was the main witness against Slim and Hondo... On a murder case, they put him in with other prosecution witnesses, and it's commonly called the snitch tank, which is a separate jail from the men's central jail. And while Kevin was in there, he told his cellmate, uh, Willie Battle, and the guy that was in the next cell over, uh, Jesse Williams, he told them what actually happened. Because they asked, and that's very common in jail, what are you in for? And they exchanged information, but this time it only came from Kevin. He told them what happened, and they twisted it around and ran with it. And then they called the Compton Police Department and asked them if they had a, a murder case where the body was found by a canal. They called it a canal. It's really a drainage ditch. And they... Put him in contact with Detective Marvin Branscombe, who was not Sergeant uh, Preston, who Kevin gave the statement to. And they convinced Branscombe that what they had to say was, was true, which they said that Kevin confessed to these attempted murders and murder.
6: They said, hey, we got a guy down here blagging about killing this guy and this fabulous lady and his other tell me he's a big time dope dealer. So I end up going from being the actual witness to now I'm being the
5: actual killer. So Kevin became a defendant instead of the prosecution witness. And they moved him out of the snitch tank to another part of the jail. So Kevin's transferred over to the central jail. And then he met a very notorious snitch named Leslie White. And I get a call from Leslie White. I'd never heard of Leslie White. Leslie White says, I understand you're defending Kevin Dykes and that He has been ratted out by two snitches. And I said, That's exactly right. He says, Well, I can help you. You come down here and I'm going to tell you all about the snitch system and how it works. Okay, so I go down to the jail. I talk to Leslie White. He tells me about how inmates get a hold of paperwork and change facts. And get a hold of the detective or DA that's handling a particular murder case. And because they know these unique facts, they can convince the detective or uh, district attorney that's handling the case that this confession was a valid confession. So I said, well, that sounds good. Okay, I'll put you on the witness list, Mr. White. So about a week or two later, I get the witness list from uh, the district attorney. And Leslie White is on there as a people's witness. And not only that, I get a report that says that Kevin Dykes confessed to Leslie White. And I'm flabbergasted because I just talked to Leslie White and he was going to be a witness for Kevin. So I go down to the jail and I, I call out Leslie White and he's willing to come and talk to me. And I said, what are you, are you a witness for the prosecution now? He says, yep. I said, well, you know that Kevin's innocent. Why are you doing what? How can you do that? And he says, well, man's got to do what he's got to do. That's what he said. I got to be honest. My
0: head is spinning and I didn't even live through this. I mean, this is Kevin. I mean, I'm so sorry that you're living. This is like, this is your life we're talking about.
6: I didn't actually believe that what was going on was even possible. I didn't think that this stuff would hold. I'm like, what? Hold up. I'm an actual eyewitness. These guys, they don't know nothing about where I live or nothing about what actually happened. So I didn't really believe the people could do what they were were doing to me. I had never even heard about that before.
0: I mean, this is is like nothing. I don't think we've ever heard a story like this before. So, Stephen, what happens next?
5: When we got to court, all they had was his statement to Sergeant Preston. And three snitches. And I couldn't believe that they would even want to proceed with this evidence. But they did. And just before the verdict was issued, I told Kevin, I said, Now, Kevin, when you get out of here, you've got to change your ways. Be a law-abiding citizen and a use to society. And he said, Yeah, okay, Mr. Hauser, I'm going to do that. Came back guilty. We were both floored.
0: You were sentenced to twenty four years to life. Here it is now two thousand and twenty you're still in. Can you just take us back there? Put us in that courtroom with you if you can.
6: I actually could not believe the verdict. You know, I actually ended up crying. I just see how it was possible. Yeah, you know, I was after an actual eyewitness. I came forward, I gave them everything they needed, all the evidence, the car, the weapons, the people. Ephraim testified that uh, I didn't attack him. Ephraim was stabbed like 33 times. And he testified that I didn't attack him. And he testified that I didn't attack Miss Bradley. That was my friend's mother. There was nobody there that said I attacked anybody but the sister's.
0: And this is something I really need to highlight here, which is that if you go in a jury box and you're presented with a case where someone's life is hanging in the balance, just like Kevin's was, and there's no evidence connecting that person to the crime except for the testimony of a snitch. You cannot vote to convict because it's crazy. I mean, these are people who are clearly incentivized. They may not tell you that at the time, but you have to understand that the defense can never bribe a witness. That's a, that's a crime punishable by a long time in jail. But the government can make a deal with a snitch to reduce their charges or drop their charges in exchange for testimony. And that is the best bribe of all. So it's the most unreliable testimony imaginable. And here you have a case where the direct evidence contradicts what the snitches were saying. The evidence showed that Kevin could not have committed this crime, and yet he ends up getting convicted on the, the testimony of people who were, were notoriously untrustworthy and were incentivized to lie.
6: Mr. Howard found evidence where they get apartments. They say, oh, he's been in my family. So the government gives them money to relocate them, move them in apartments. All of them end up getting reduced sentence. Leslie White end up getting out after testifying against me. I don't know if you remember this, Miss Allen. He came right back, and then he threatened the district attorney, if you don't let me back out, I'm going to blow this whole case up. You remember that, Miss Allen?
5: What happened was uh, Leslie White then uh, went on 60 Minutes when he was back in again in the jail. And he showed on camera how he could work his magic and get favors from DA. And then when I saw that, I went down and talked to Leslie White. I said, uh, well, now I know for sure you lied in Kevin's case. And he said, yeah, I did. And I said, well, I want you to sign an affidavit that you lied in Kevin's case because Kevin deserves a new trial. And so sure enough, he signed it. But instead of giving Kevin a new trial, the DA indicted him. Leslie White, with the grand jury, had me come in and testify. And they gave Leslie White four years for perjury. They gave Kevin Dykes nothing. And that's where it sat. It's all
0: so backwards and upside down. And of course, you know, we have two more characters that are coming up. Gigi Gordon, who's on the right side of this story. And Willie Battles, we can't leave him
5: out. Yeah, when this uh, snitch system came out, thanks to Leslie White, believe it or not, Gigi Gordon was appointed. She's a defense lawyer. She's deceased now, but uh, she was a criminal defense lawyer, a friend of mine. And Gigi Gordon was appointed by, I think, the Supreme Court to do an independent investigation on all of the snitch cases to see if justice was done. And she spent over a year on this project being paid by the state of California. And as a result of Gigi Gordon's research and investigation, a law was introduced in the legislature to require corroboration if snitch testimony is going to be used in a case. And that happened
0: but they didn't do it retroactively. Am I getting that right? Because it's, it always drives me nuts when we change a law in this country and we don't do it retroactively. How could it be different now than it was before? It it
5: doesn't make sense. Didn't make any sense to me. That's why I appealed it. We went to the appellate court in California, then the the Supreme Court. And actually, uh, when we went to the Supreme Court, the first time the law had not been changed yet. But then we went back to the Supreme Court on another issue and the law had been changed. And in federal court, the judge actually said that uh, Kevin might be innocent, but uh, there's nothing I can do because this law is not retroactive or something to that effect. And I just thought that that was the most unjust result I've ever had in my whole career. Still is. Wow. And so if Kevin's case were tried now... Uh, they wouldn't have any any evidence against him because the only incriminating evidence was from the snitch testimony.
3: I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the General. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but...
4: Same old. Us. Oh, yeah. How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: When your child fights sleep, it can feel like a battle you'll never win. Imagine a bedtime routine you all look forward to, where you cuddle in and let the stress of the day melt away. Tune in tonight and bond over a story before drifting off to sleep. Make bedtime the sweetest part of your day. Sleep tight stories. Listen to sleep tight stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: If Kevin's case were to be tried now, they would have no evidence against him. And yet it's 34 years later and he's uh, I can't, this is nuts. Um,
5: I went uh, to the district attorney with that very argument. With each new district attorney that came in, I would go talk to him and they told me. That because of his statement, admitting what he did, pretending to go along with what uh, Slim and Honda were doing, because of that statement, that made him guilty. And they said, sorry, uh, you have to present new evidence to us before we're going to recommend anything for Kevin. And I said, what's the matter with these confessions by these snitches? That's new evidence, at least since the trial. Two out of three, Leslie White signed an affidavit that sent him, put himself in prison, and Jesse Williams uh, signed a letter saying that he lied in Kevin's case. He said, no, we want some more than that. Plus, you've got one snitch that you don't have, you know, retraction from, Willie Battle. We never had a retraction from him. And Willie Battle, I tried to find, but I he's probably dead.
0: So that's where we sit. And what is the outlook now? I mean, is there hope?
5: I think Kevin has two two hopes. Number one, uh, with a new DA, I think Gascon is is much more progressive than Jackie Lacey. I thought Jackie Lacey was very progressive, and I had high hopes for Kevin when she put together uh, her internal Innocence Project, and I met with a what I thought was a very ethical, fine lawyer. And I got a very unfavorable result. And uh, I asked him during that hearing, I said, you know, as a human being, you know, do you really think that Kevin Dykes was convicted properly, fairly? He wouldn't answer. He wouldn't give me an answer. That was the guy in charge of Jackie Lacey's uh, internal innocence project. And in
0: case people think there's not enough here already, we have a case where the victim's family doesn't hold Kevin responsible. I think anybody coming out of, you know, high school would look at this and go, "Okay, well, this guy's innocent. Let's get him home. But the way the laws are set up, it's really, really difficult, even in a case like this with so much compelling evidence of uh, not just reasonable doubt, but evidence of actual innocence. And now the next step, really, and luckily we have a great governor, um, by opinion, of course, uh, the great governor of the state of California, Gavin Newsom. What is the process for trying to get this on his desk?
5: The law in California is that if you've done state prison time, you have to go to the Supreme Court before you can petition the governor on a different case. Because of that prior conviction for involuntary manslaughter, Kevin can't go to the governor's office, or I can't go on his behalf to the governor. Uh, You have to petition the Supreme Court and get permission from them to ask the governor for a pardon or clemency. And in the years past, we've had a pretty conservative Supreme Court, which is different now, but might as well try that if there's nothing else.
0: That is a strange thing in the law, too, in California. It's not the first time I've encountered it where it has to, you know, the underlying previous conviction stands in the way of even the governor taking an action because I believe if he knew about this case, he would want to.
5: But I think the best thing to do is to uh, hope for parole, hope that the DA does not oppose parole. Kevin comes up for parole, I think, in another year or two. On
6: December 13th next year.
5: Yeah. Okay. Wow. But uh, even better is to have uh, the new D.A. take a look at this case and admit that Kevin was wrongfully convicted.
0: Kevin, what would you like people to do or, 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 or to know?
6: Well, I know I did the right thing when I went to the police. He had nothing to hide. I told the truth in. I told the truth in front of the jury. Even now, I don't regret doing the right thing because it was my friend's life. And it was important for his mother to know the truth. What happened to her son? I would do the same thing again. I would still go through the police. I would still tell the truth. Maybe I wouldn't say that while I'm in jail. It cost me a lot. I've lost like 17 family members. My mom had a stroke a few years ago. Now it cost me a lot, but I would still do it, even after all this time.
0: In all this time in prison, have there been any, like, Moments of little rays of light that poked their head into such a dark place. And and was there a particular moment where you almost lost hope, sort of a darkest moment for you?
6: I found the Lord the last five years, so I'm at peace finally with God and myself. So now it's like, you know what? There's nothing I can do about what they've done. I'm not going to let them take what's left that I got in my spirit. And now my family is proud of me, even though I've never done nothing because I've changed my life. So it's been dark times, time, trust me, a lot. But I'm going to keep pushing. I'm going to keep believing.
0: I got to. That's all I got. I mean, I'm just sitting here with a heavy uh, sort of knot in my stomach, just the fact that, uh, I mean, you're a 59-year-old man. You spent uh, almost twice as long in prison as you were free. You're no threat to society. This is what the parole board is for, you know, this man needs to go home i'm going to stay optimistic and i'm going to tell you we're going to do everything we can and uh i feel like society owes you a debt and an apology and um all we can do is is bring as much attention as we can and trying to bring this to the attention of the people who can make a difference in this case try to make it right all right so we have a uh a very special uh, section or segment of this show. um, That's my favorite part. And this is what we call closing arguments. I, first of all, thank you both. So first of all, Stephen K. Hauser attorney, thank you for being here with us today.
5: Thank you. It's a privilege.
0: And Kevin Dykes, what can I say, man, you are inspiring guy Uh, from what little I know uh, you just from this call. I can tell your spirit is coming through the wire all the way across the country and it's gonna be going out to a lot of people. So thank you for sharing your thoughts and being so courageous here today. Thank you, no problem. And now I turn my microphone off uh, and I just uh, leave my my headphones on, close my eyes, and, and let you both talk about whatever you want for the last few minutes of the show. Kevin, we're gonna save you for last, if that's okay. And Stephen, please just share whatever it is that's on your mind.
5: Uh, well, uh... Kevin, let's hope this is another step to get you out of prison. Uh, it's been a long, long road, but uh,
6: I won't give up, ever.
0: And Kevin, over to you.
6: I'm thankful, you know, and, and it's taken me a long time, but I'm at peace. Like I said, like the last five years now. And my life now still has purpose and meaning despite what they've done. I owe no ill feelings towards nobody. It is what it is. They did what they did. All I've lost, i lost. My life, I was 24 years old. I'm 59 now. I'll be 60 next year. I've been clean over five years. So it's like, there's nothing else that I can't do because I don't control it. But I won't let what they've done to me back then do something to me now. I'm free. You know, inside, and I'm, I'm at peace. And, and, and even if I die in here, I'll be at peace knowing I stood for the truth. And for once, I did the right thing as an adult for my family. I wasn't always a criminal. When it came down to, to my life and death, I did do the right thing for once. Some of my parents was proud of me. There's nothing I can do but keep my mind focused on what's possible, what could be possible, and how to help others. It's a given opportunity. It's God, family, and my community, where I see it now. And I won't let nothing take that from me. That's all I have. And I appreciate everything that you guys are doing, and, and I appreciate some support from anybody, whether it's to the governor, whatever it can be done to help me at least get the truth, the absolute truth, in front of the people, and then let them decide again. I feel I need to be punished for what I did then? if they say so, because I pretended, but hey, I was worried for my life, scared for my life at the time. But I did what I believed being was the right thing, and I don't regret really doing that.
0: Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at wrongfulconviction and on Facebook at wrongfulconvictionpodcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number 1.
1: I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala.
3: We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy
2: way of saying...
1: A, a podcast. podcast.
3: for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Defect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right.
1: Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots